Now hear God's holy word from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, continuing our study in Paul's epistle to the Corinthian church. Pay close attention. This is God's holy word. Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. And one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. I pray that it would take root in us today, that we would hear the exhortations, the encouragements, the admonitions, that we would be changed and transformed through this encounter with your word. Make us more and more like your son, Jesus. Help me to articulate these things clearly. Deliver us from everything and anything that would uh, create distraction or uh, any kind of error. Help me to forget those things which are not helpful and only remember those things which are helpful. Father in heaven, we ask for your Spirit's guidance now. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Do table manners matter anymore? Look around the dining room of a family restaurant on a Friday evening, and you would think that the answer to that question is a loud and resounding no. Table manners do not matter anymore. Children shriek and yelp and wallow with impunity, without restraint. People of all ages chomp and chew and crunch and slurp with their mouths wide open so that not only do you have the benefit of hearing what they're eating, but also the wonderful privilege of seeing what they're eating as they eat it. They talk with their mouths full. Utensils are strictly optional. And when they leave the table, it looks like some orangutans had just popped by for a tea party and left a bombed out area behind. We no longer have shared assumed societal definitions of what proper behavior at the dinner table looks like. And I have a theory for this, and it's very simple. It, it's not, it doesn't take a genius to get here. The reason people are not trained in how to act when they get together and sit across the table from each other is that this happens so very rarely. This, doesn't, this is not something that happens often. If growing up, the great majority of your weeknight dinners are Happy Meals eaten in the back seat on the way to soccer practice. And by the way, we've had a few Happy Meals in the back seat over the years, but I'm saying if, if ordinarily that's what dinner is to you, dinner is a Happy Meal in the back seat on the way to soccer practice, is if as a teenager, supper is a, is a hot pocket and a bag of Doritos in your room alone in front of the computer, if the rare family gathering is sitting around a table where everybody is simultaneously on their phones, when do you ever have opportunity to learn manners? When do you have opportunity to learn respectable behavior? In these cases, whether you're in the back seat or in front of the computer by yourself, why does it matter how you eat? When the only person you regularly eat around is yourself, when are you going to learn that other people may not necessarily want to hear or see what you have in your mouth? When are you going to learn to bring your fork to your mouth instead of your head to the plate? When are you going to learn that? When are you going to learn, you know, use a knife to push the beans onto your fork, not your fingers. You know, you might as well just pick them up and shove them in your mouth, right? We aren't aware of these things unless 
we're taught. And I, I would argue that manners matter. They do matter because they're a function of a particular awareness. And I absolutely understand and agree that these things change from culture to culture. And I, I, you know, it's not even worth arguing that they do change, but they are manners within a culture are a function of a particular awareness. And that awareness is that I am a communal creature, that what I do affects other people. I do not exist by myself for myself. So pursuing good manners is a synonym of loving others, esteeming others more highly than yourself. You know well that we don't communicate simply through words, we communicate through actions. And so if I sit across the table from you and I sneeze all over everything that's on the table, I'm without covering my mouth or making any attempt to avoid it, I, I'm just, I just don't. I clearly don't love you. I don't, I don't respect you. I don't care about you. You see, the reason that selfish behavior at the table and bad manners at the table and around food, the reason that they're so much more pronounced and offensive than other poor habits is that the table is where we come together. The table is where friendship and, and, and is strengthened and bonds are tightened. That, this is why careless or boorish or unhygienic behavior at the table is hateful behavior. It's it, because it's an offense against our unity. Now, having a shared sense of what's supposed to happen at the table, that's not restrictive. That's not, that's not onerous. It's, it's not a straitjacket. You, you, you may think, oh, it's just so, you know, there's all these judgments and, 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 and rules and everything. It's, it's not. I mean, if, if, if that's the way you think, then why don't we just use feedbacks? You know, why don't we just put it over our ears and just, you know, tear into whatever's in the bag and then, and then leave it for somebody else to pick up. But see, these, these restrictions are not, they're not onerous. They're not a straitjacket. It's, it's actually liberating. It, it's liberating when I know what's going on and you know what's going on. And so we can both relax and be at ease because we're all operating with the same sense of propriety. This is why we train our children in proper behavior so that maybe they will be people who grow up to be the kind of people that other people want to be around. These are, these are the kind of people that other people want to have dinner with someday and won't, you know, uh, ignore or, or, or won't want anything to do with. For many chapters in Paul's letter that we've been studying, he's been addressing things pertaining to this mutuality, this interdependence, and much of it's been dealing with food. What you eat and where you eat it has been at the center of what he's been writing about because there's a theology underlying what we eat and what happens at your dinner parties. Moreover, in, in the last section we read, what you wear. And, and how you do your hair, and how you wear your hair. Uh, these, are, these, these communicate something about your submission to authority and your love for the brethren. And, and the purpose of all this is not to enforce a new law code that's even more difficult or, or, or more troublesome to bear than the laws of the Pharisees. That's not the point at all. The point is that we live with wisdom that we live carefully and skillfully navigating this world as men and women made in the image of God, citizens of the new creation. Now, the last half of, uh, uh, last half of chapter 11 brings us back around to food and manners at the table, manners at dinner parties. But here the focus of the behavior is, is, is drilled down into the Corinthians' behavior at the Lord's table. Because presumably, uh, presumably we've rejected the tables of demons and God only knows what nasty habits were being practiced there, what uh, filthy things reigned 
at demons tables. We've left those tables, but it looks like we've tracked in some of the bad manners of the world, and now we're exhibiting those when we share the sacrament. And in this section, Paul corrects these ugly practices that are being tolerated. And he has nothing good to say about what they're doing here. He has, he has no commendations for their bad manners. At other places, he, he, he says, I, I see what you're up to. I see where you're thinking, but, but let, me, let me pull you back over here. He has nothing good to say here. In verse 17, he says, now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. And then down in verse 22, he says, what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. The communion meal that should be the symbol and the seal of their oneness with each other and their oneness with Christ has become an occasion for them to highlight their factions. It's become an occasion for them to underscore their division and to even shame other people at the Lord's table. He says this in verse 18, for first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there also must be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Um, the, the, the Corinthians have been really bad about not drawing lines where the Lord has drawn them, and they've drawn lines where the Lord hasn't drawn them. How, how have they done that? They, they've been bad about setting up distinctions where God has, 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 has not, and, and have been bad about not drawing lines where God has. So, so God has drawn lines between male and female, between the tables of demons and the table of the Lord, between the marital union and going to prostitutes. And these are all distinctions that God has made, but they're just mashing all those things together and blurring the lines. But then they have drawn lines where God hasn't drawn them. They've set up their factions around their favorite apostles and teachers. They've set up their cliques around those with status in the world and those who don't have status in the world. So then he says somewhat sardonically, he says, I've heard their divisions among you and I partly believe it. There have to be factions among you. You must be setting up divisions at the Lord's table or else how would you underscore, how would you, how would you uh, make sure that the really important people stand out? You know, how, how would you do? Because I know that's what's in your heart. So I know that there have to be divisions at the Lord's table. One of the challenges of reading Paul's epistle when, when he's answering questions or when he's responding to situations in local churches, one of the challenges is we're only getting half the conversation. Their letters, the letters of the Corinthians, their communication isn't preserved for us. So, so we have to piece together what was going on. And what appears to have been taking place is that in these celebrations, and especially when they came together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, that wasn't confined to corporate worship, but they also practiced it as part of their community dinner parties, which may have happened on the Lord's Day, but weren't strictly within the worship. Uh, together, their communal worship, because he writes this in verse 20. He says, therefore, when you come together in one place, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper for in eating each one. He, he, so you think you're, you think you're doing the Lord's Supper. You think you're doing communion, but you're not for in eating. Each one takes his own supper ahead of others. And one is hungry and another is drunk. What do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or you do, do, do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? So it seems like what is going on, the scenario here, is that there would have been a full meal served, and at some point in the evening, they would set apart a, a specific loaf of bread and a specific bottle of wine and give thanks 
and memorialize the Lord's death by eating and drinking together at some point in their big feast, at some point in their dinner. But there was a terrible uneasiness hanging over this practice because this sacrament of union and communion was celebrated in this environment of status-seeking, of selfishness, of, of sectarianism, and, and overall rude behavior. You want to talk about bad manners. This is worse than, you know, talking with your mouth full. It would have been very difficult to be at rest with what was happening here. And I want to try to imagine this. Imagine if we were to throw a big church picnic, and we were to smoke a whole hog, and we were to put tents up, and have a DJ, and put out tables with white uh, tablecloths and use crystal and nice dishes and nice silverware. And we're really, we're really, we're bringing out the best uh, drinks, the best uh, wine. Uh, we, we make a real scene out of it. But then some families of our church were to show up and we were to say, oh, 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 who, who invited you? Um, you don't, you don't belong here. This isn't for you. All of this, we paid for this. This isn't for you. This is for the important people. This is for these important people. Oh, you didn't bring anything with you? Oh, I'm sorry. That's unfortunate. And so if you're part of these left out people, maybe you go down to the convenience store and you get, you know, some bottles of water and some Vienna sausages, or we used to, Vienna weenies, you've had those, and crackers and, you know, pork rinds or whatever. And you sit down on the grass and you spread out a blanket and and you eat that while everybody else enjoys the big uh, pig picking. And, and Paul says, one goes hungry while another gets drunk. That's the scene. Some are really living it up. Well, some are having a really big time and some are starving. Now, now let's say, now that's enough to really turn you off, right? I mean, that's enough to really ruffle uh, your feathers and, and, and get under your hide. That's really, really bad. But, but now let's say in the middle of this, someone brings out, bread and wine and thinks, you know what, this is a really good time for communion. The, the incongruity of that would give you whiplash. That's, that's the worst table manners. This is the most offensive thing that, that you could do. And in the Corinthians case, add to this, even, even more offensive, the possibility that if this meal was held on the Lord's day and you were a slave who still had to work all day, you didn't get the day off. You don't get Sunday off you show up after work and you get to the place where worship and fellowship are being held, but the party started without you and all of the bread and all of the wine has been consumed. That's, Paul's, uh, that's why Paul gives this exasperated admonition that some of them are not waiting and, and not sharing what they have. In all of these ways, the church is demonstrating contempt for the table of the Lord, contempt for the body of Christ, contempt for the weakest of them, and bringing shame on the poor in the community. And so this is why he says very strongly, very boldly, with, with uh, fire dripping from his pen as he writes this, he says, I do not praise you in this. You do not treat people this way. You do not leave them out. You mustn't do this. And so he goes on to remind them about what the Lord's Supper uh, is about to begin with. In verse 23, he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death 
till he comes. What the Lord Jesus gave his church is a simple ritual that we've spent the last 2,000 years complicating. And as they were sitting together, remember, this is what happens. This is what the gospel writers tell us, and this is what Paul relates to us. They were sitting together. Jesus took bread. He gave thanks. He broke it, and he gave it to his, his disciples. He gave it to the apostles. The first man took a bite of the bread and passed it on. He took a bite, right, and, and passed it on. Um, then, then Jesus took the cup. And the Gospels tell us he blessed the cup, he passed it around, and they drank it. That, they were sitting at a feast, they were sitting around the table, and Jesus takes the bread and he passes it around, he takes the cup and he passes it around. One disciple passes it to the next, to the next, to the next. He showed them what to do, and he said, do this. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't line up, they didn't kneel to receive it from the Lord. Jesus didn't dip the bread in the wine and, and give it to them. No, they just, they just passed it around, seated. He showed them what to do, and he said, do this. This is simple. He didn't even say, think about this really hard. He just said, do it. Do it as my memorial. The, the translation we're used to is, do this in remembrance of me. And it makes it sound like that what we're doing, we're doing this so that we can remember and reflect on the sacrifice of Jesus. And as if the most important thing that we're supposed to be doing here is focus really intensely and remember this. There is nothing wrong with reflecting on the work of Jesus. That is highly commendable. You must reflect on the work of Jesus. But that's not exactly what Jesus is calling for here. I prefer the translation. Jesus says, do this as my memorial. Uh, what is a memorial? What, what is throughout the Bible? There are covenant memorials throughout the whole Old Testament. The sacrifices in Leviticus are described as memorials, not for Israel to remember something, but for God. God is the one doing the remembering. God is the one memorializing the covenant. In Numbers 10, uh, hear this. This is uh, from Numbers 10.10. 10. On the day of your gladness also and at your appointed feasts and at the beginning of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings. They shall be a memorial of you before your God. I am Yahweh your God. God is the one doing the remembering. God is the one who looks at the memorial. He gave them signs and sacraments and feast days that didn't just serve as reminders for the people, but they were reminders for him. What, what does the Lord say when he sets the rainbow in the heavens? He says, when I bring clouds over the earth and, and my bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant. There's that scene when Israel's crossing the Jordan River, when they're first coming into the land of promise, and they cross the Jordan River on dry land, and before the river closes again, they take a pile of rocks from the bottom of the river, and they set up a big memorial, uh, a pile of rocks on the side of the river, and then they take some rocks from the side of the river, and they put them down in the bottom of the river, and then the river closes back up. The memorial that is standing on the side of the riverbanks, that memorial's for Israel. Remember what you did here. Remember that God passed you through the waters into this land of Canaan. For whom does that pile of rock stand that's in the middle of the river? Well, nobody sees that, right? But it's, it's a memorial for God. All these memorials are for God to look and see, yes, these are my people. Yes, these were my mighty works. Yes, these are my promises. This is my covenant. Not, not because God forgets, 
God doesn't have to tie a string around his finger. God doesn't have to put a post-it note on his mirror, right? He He doesn't have to set an alert on his phone to remember to do something. That's not why God needs memorials. But, but God has and sets up these memorials because he sees everything. He sees our sin. He sees our rebellion. He sees the trajectories of our wicked and foolish acts. And so he layers over all of that the rainbow. And he looks at us through the rainbow and through his covenant promises. He looks through the sacrifices. He looks through the blood of Jesus when he looks at us. So when the church gathers for communion, it's not necessarily in order for us to have individual subjective thoughts about the life and death of Jesus, but it's that sign of the death of Jesus that is being set before God as a memorial. We're not re-crucifying the Lord Jesus. We are not re-sacrificing the Lord Jesus. It is a sign, a sign of the death of Jesus that is set before God as a memorial and he sees the sign and he blesses us. He feeds us by the Holy Spirit, on Christ's body and blood. And we show forth the Lord's death by this. God sees it and we receive the benefits of it. So that's, that's, what, he, that's what the Lord is saying there. The Lord Jesus says, do this as my memorial. Just as these old covenant memorials were setting forth the works of God before his face to cover for our foolish and wicked and sinful acts, we set this up in front of us and we say, Lord, remember, remember this. Now, reminding the church of the gravity of this sacrament, of what they're doing, Paul calls them to sobriety. He says, therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment and the rest I will set in order when I come. See, those who are eating and drinking in this selfish way are sinning against the body and blood of Jesus. They're eating, drinking, not blessing to themselves, but they're drinking judgment to themselves. It's not that they're desecrating the bread or the wine, they're desecrating the body of Christ. Uh, The effect of the death of Jesus is to bring unity. It's to create one new humanity. But but by tracking in their bad manners, their bad habits from the, the demonic world of idolatry, They're creating divisions in the body of Christ. By trampling on the poor and the weak, they're highlighting the very behaviors that the Lord Jesus died for. And and Jesus is not going to let that go unpunished. So Paul boldly says, for this reason, because of your misbehavior at the table, many of you are sick and many of you are dying. That might sound really strange to us. How does bad behavior, how does sinful, wicked behavior in one area of life affect something else or even somebody else? But, but Paul preaches a truth here that all of life is interlocked. All of life is intertwined. Individual behavior, individual belief or practice can and does result in uh, uh, bad things in other areas of our lives, I- including our health. You see, Unbelief, idolatry, sexual perversion, even if it's hidden, even if you think nobody knows about it, has an impact on your whole life and on the whole body. 
where do we see this in the scripture? How can we support this? Well, Achan thought he had a very private family sin, a very private stash of, of treasure that he kept all to himself. And it was nobody else's business. It was hidden under his tent. But all of Israel suffered because of Achan's sin. Achan's sin brought defeat on all of Israel because all of life are interconnected. All of us are interconnected. What I do affects you. And what you do affects me. Your public behavior affects everyone around you, but so does your private behavior. And Paul says, this is, this is what's happening. That you're, you're desecrating the Lord's table and there are some who are weak and there are some who are sick and there are some who are dying because of this corruption that you're permitting. So Paul says, when you come together, wait on each other. One wise application of this for the Corinthian church would be, you know, if we're going to have the Lord's Supper, make sure everybody is there. That's why we always only want to have communion ordinarily in public settings. That's, we don't want to have communion at weddings, for example, when, you know, not the whole church isn't here. Not everybody's here, right? We don't, we don't want to just have the invited people. We don't want to just have this special class of people who are eating at the Lord's table. Wait on each other. Make sure everybody's there. Make sure everybody's off of work so that everyone can be here. If we're going to have communion, make sure the whole church is present. And then just to be sure, this would have been a wise application as well. We're going to greet the poorest. We're going to greet the least. We're going to greet the weakest. And we're going to put them at the front of the table. We're going to put them at the front of the room to make sure they are served first. You are going to eat first. Make sure we don't leave you out. We don't want to leave anybody out. And that's what Paul is after in this section, that we don't want to leave anybody out of the Lord's table, out of the Lord's Supper. Sadly, over the last five to eight hundred years, these verses have been wrenched out of this context of what, about what Paul is specifically correcting and have been applied in such a way to turn communion into something that is primarily intellectual or internal. And, and it's only for a certain class of Christian. In fact, uh, we're doing exactly the opposite of what Paul is exhorting the Corinthians to do. He says, don't leave out the least of these. Make sure they all get fed. If you exclude people, you're eating and drinking judgment to yourself. And we read it and we think, well, I, I think what he's saying there is that there are people who ought to be left out. That baptized children of God, baptized followers of Jesus shouldn't come to the table. So let's go ahead and exclude them. How do we do this? What am I talking about? Well, uh, you know that throughout most of the Reformed and Protestant branches of the church today, there is a two-stage admittance to the sacraments. You're baptized as an infant, and then you're brought up to the point where it's believed that, well, now maybe you can understand what's going on at the Lord's table, and so now you're admitted to the supper. And this two-step practice is based on uh, verse 28 and verse 29, that, that concludes you have to be able to examine yourself and you have to be able to discern the Lord's body as if these two things are purely intellectual exercises. And, and so the assumption is apart from the ability to examine and apart from the ability to discern the Lord's body, you, you can't have access to the Lord's table. And so since children can't do this, children can't do this thing called examination. They can't do this thing called discernment. They, they don't understand what's going on. So children don't belong at the Lord's table. This is the principal argument against the practice of inviting baptized children to the Lord's table. And by that same measure, the mentally 
handicapped are excluded for life because they can't examine and they can't discern. Is that, is that what Paul is aiming for here? Is that what he's saying? Do we read between the lines and say, actually, Paul wants us to exclude the weak. That's really what he's aiming for here. He wants us to exclude the young. He wants us to exclude the immature. On a plain reading of what we just read together, on a plain reading, is that what you come away with? That, that we're supposed to exclude the weakest and the smallest and the youngest and the most immature. Well, I know that I'm mostly preaching to the congregation, uh, to the choir rather. I know, that we're, um, I, I know that we have and share this practice of inviting children to the table, but it's possible that at some point you've maybe questioned yourself and said, well, well, what about this examine? What about this discerning? Well, how do we interpret that? And so I, I, wanna, I wanna spend just a few minutes on that to remind you of, of why we do what we do and why in fact we are being obedient to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and not uh, in opposition to it. Let's make sure we're reading this clearly then. The verb that Paul uses in verse 28, the, the verb that he uses for examine, uh, I get one Greek word a year, and I'm going to use it now. I'll play my Greek card now. I try to keep myself to one a year. Um, not really, but uh, the word he uses is dokimazo, which is, this is the word for examine. This is the word which means prove or approve or test. And, and Paul uses this word often. He uses it in 1 Corinthians 3.13. He says, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work. That's dokimazo. The fire will prove what kind of work he has done. This, this isn't an internal examination. This isn't an internal, internal evaluation to do with um, you know, something you figure out yourself. It has to do with proving or approving something or someone. In 1 Corinthians 16, 3, Paul says, When I come, whoever you approve, dokimazo, whoever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. So, so how does this approving or proving uh, function in context of the Lord's Supper. The proof or the approval or the test of Christian behavior at the Lord's table, that's not an act of introspection, but it's an outward display of unity with respect to the body of Christ. We prove ourselves at the Lord's table by how we eat, not by how much we understand or how thoroughly we've searched our hearts, Self-diagnosis is, is always called for. Self-diagnosis may be involved, but the proof, the test, is how we behave toward others in the body of Christ. Are you shoving people aside and removing people from the Lord's table? Are you, uh, are you selfishly uh, uh, putting yourself forward and ignoring uh, the weakest and the least? You see, the Corinthians are being exclusive. They are being prideful. They are introducing sectarianism at the Lord's table. They're dividing the body at the point where the Lord Jesus means to unite them at the table. At the table, they are treating other members of the body as nothing. So this rebuke, examine yourself or prove yourself or approve yourself, it doesn't have anything to do with their intellectual capacity or their ability to privately meditate on their own sinful condition, or to make calculations on the presence of Jesus in the bread and in the wine. That's not what's being called there for there. Uh, what, what's going on is that they are not approving themselves by behaving uh, uh, with, with uh, proper respect toward the body at the table. So what about discerning the body in verse 29, uh, where he says, 
For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. What does that mean? What does it mean to discern the Lord's body? Is this a theological exercise that we have to repeat every week at the Lord's table? Do we have to sit and think about how the bread and the wine are related to the body and blood of Jesus? Well, if this were a reference to some intense focus on the elements, then he would say body and blood. Every time he talks about the sacrament, he puts these two things together. He says body and blood, but here he just says discerning the body. It seems best to understand that this is a reference to recognizing the church as Christ's body when we come to the table. It's that body that the Corinthians are not being discerning about. And again, this discerning the Lord's body is not some subjective inner reflection that's being called for here, but an objective concrete question. How do you treat others in the church? Do you promote the unity of the body of Christ? Are you reconciled with your brothers and sisters? Or are you ignoring the counsel and exhortation and encouragement and fellowship of the body? That is the body that's in view. You see, we can't pull this instruction about examining and discerning. We can't pull this out of the the context of the problems in Corinth. This is not some free-floating instruction about the Lord's Supper that has no connection with the context. What they needed to prove, what the Corinthians needed to prove, was their unity to show that they truly discern the body of Christ. They really do care about the body of Christ. Not the bread, but the church the body. And so we can turn it back around and say, you know what? If you don't admit the baptized members of your church, if you don't admit the children of your church to the table, you're committing the very same error that the church at Corinth was committing. They are not discerning the body. They are not approving themselves with respect to the division that they are introducing at the table in barring children. If somebody needs to examine themselves, it's those who are barring children from the table. In the same letter, Paul recognizes every baptized member of the church is holy in Christ. He says that twice. He says in chapter 1, verse 2, and chapter 7, verse 14, he says, you are holy, every baptized member. Later, he says, weaker members of the body are to be honored by stronger members of the body. How can you faithfully participate in the sacrament that seals and unifies the unity of the body while at the same time excluding the weakest and smallest members of the body? Is the table only for the strong? Is it only for the educated? Is it only for the intelligent? Are our children not holy? Are not all baptized uh, members of, of Christ's body members of this body? And if they're members of the body, Are they not one loaf, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 17? If our children are included in the body among the saints, if they are holy, then why shouldn't they be invited to the Lord's table? One more important question that we have to ask is, when we come to this chapter and we come to this instruction is, are are all these stern warnings about disunity, these stern warnings about disruption at the Lord's table, Are they directed at children? Are these typical sins of two-year-olds and five-year-olds? Does a five-year-old tend to uh, be tempted by excluding people from the Lord's table? Is, Is that the sin that they typically commit? 
You see, if, if, if two-year-olds and five-year-olds really are flagrantly disrupting the unity of the church, if they are profaning the Lord's sacrament by their behavior in this way, then I would say, yeah, this applies. But if children are not committing the abuses that Paul is correcting, then there's no basis for excluding them from the Lord's table. And that's why in, in our churches, in our communion of churches, in this congregation, this is why baptized children are welcome to the Lord's table week by week. Because I don't want us eating and drinking judgment. That's why. I want all of our children to learn table manners at this table. Children, this is where you eat with Jesus. This, children, is where you look around the room and you discern the body. You see moms and dads, brothers and sisters, men and women, the old and the young. This is where you see these people. These are the people who are with you. These are the people who are for you in holding forth the body and blood of Jesus, proclaiming the death of Jesus together as our only covering for sin. Children, you learn week by week that this covering uh, for sin, this covering is for you. His blessings, children, are for you. His death, children, boys and girls, his death is for you. His body and his blood are for you. His forgiveness is for you. We don't keep you at arm's length. We don't slap your hand away and say, not for you, this is not yours. We don't say not for you, not for you. We say this is for you. Jesus is for you and all of his blessings are yours. We don't say, you know, I think you think you're a believer, but uh, we'll just wait and see. We'll see how that works out. No, we rather, just as Jesus sat down a child in the midst of them, So we agree with Jesus and we look at a child and say, yeah, this is the kingdom of God. Jesus was never more indignant with his disciples than when they were trying to keep children away from him. When they were trying to hinder little children, Jesus was indignant with his disciples. What makes us think his attitude has changed on that? What what makes us think that he's changed his mind there? How much better to welcome his children, remembering that we're all children, that that not one of us is more intellectually capable of figuring out the presence of Christ in the elements than another one is. Do you want to explain to me how Jesus is present in the bread and the wine? Uh, Let's set an appointment. I've got time. Uh, Explain that to me. And and I've got all the time in the world. You think that you're going to be better at that than, than any of the rest of us, as if that were even the point here. No, that's not the point. The point is that we receive it by faith. What kind of faith? The faith of a child, humbly and without pretense. Those are the manners we teach at the Lord's table. Do it. Jesus said, do this, do it, do it, do it. Week by week, do it and trust that God works in us by his spirit and he feeds our faith. It's, it's not children who are genuinely failing to discern the Lord's body. Who fails to discern the Lord's body? Who fails to approve themselves at the Lord's table? Everyone who holds the church in contempt. Everyone who sows discord among the brethren. Everyone who sets themselves up as the church's accuser rather than those who side with the church's lover is the one who 
who doesn't examine themselves, is the one who doesn't discern the Lord's body. That is the one who is eating and drinking judgment. It is the hateful. It is the contentious. It is the status-seeking. It is the prideful. It is the arrogant who bring judgment against themselves and against us. And that's the teaching here. So wherever you have that inclination, wherever you have that, that, that cussedness, that, that inclination toward contentiousness, that inclination toward uh, accusatory uh, uh, perspectives on your brothers and sisters, wherever you have that in inclination, you need to lay it bare, check your motives, repent and turn away. Pray for graciousness, pray for forbearance and patience, pray for contentment and stop opposing the body of Christ. Stop holding the bride of Christ in contempt. Humble yourself as a child and receive the blessings of the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus. That's the kind of examination that Paul calls for. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you that you bring us week by week to uh, memorialize the sacrifice of your son Jesus as our covering for sin. And so may we even today eat and drink in joy, loving each other, truly discerning the body. And uh, Father, we pray that you would cause us to grow in this, to seek unity and community together and to repent of everything that distracts from that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.